0: This is Software Defined Survival, where we talk to AVIT professionals and software developers to find out how to leverage software to reinvent ourselves and the way we do business. We listen to their stories and ask for advice and tactics on how to survive and thrive in a software-defined world. Today on Software Defined Survival.
1: The other kind of no control systems that we've done are the ones that don't actually have controls at all. Folks walk up and use it as they want, and then they disconnect and walk away when they don't, and and
0: there aren't any sources to switch. Hey, Patrick Murray here. Before we get started, just a quick one about today's guest He talks about some more traditional control systems that are certainly not software-defined solutions, but the way he's using them, the applications he's come up with are pretty interesting and you'll probably find it useful, but the real reason I wanted to have him on the show was for his insights on 3D printing and how it applies to AV, and we get into that towards the end of the interview. I hope you like it. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. My name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest works in the trenches as a university support technician for AV. But don't let that title fool you. He's introduced some pretty innovative ideas that we'll dig into a bit later. He started his career in hi-fi, getting involved Uh, with everything from sales to installation and service, then moved on to working as a lead technician for a commercial integration company before landing at the University of Notre Dame. And I'll have to ask him if I'm saying that properly.
1: (laughs) That is correct.
0: Yes. Yeah. All right. Where he helps support um, everybody there with their technology needs. So welcome Jim Spencer to Software Defined Survival. Welcome Jim. Thank you, sir, It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for jumping in at short notice. I appreciate that. Is there anything about the introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? No, that all sounds pretty good. have gone from, uh, uh, you know, hi-fi and residential to
1: a, a commercial and educational to to being in higher ed. So it's been interesting stepping stones along the way and uh, learned a lot of of different nuances that have helped one and the other and and you learn multiple facets of the industry and it's interesting what transfers.
0: It is very faceted and nuanced. There's, there's like this <laughs> core knowledge that you could carry over everywhere, but especially going from resi to a university, there's uh yeah, it's, it's in the details that you need it's to It's still paint always it the deep. user's fault though. The user or the programmer? <laughs> well, it depends on who you're asking. Is it the salesman <laughs> or the customer? There you go. So how did you get started in AV? Uh, so my first job that was directly related to AV uh, actually
1: probably was automotive, uh, one of the jobs that wasn't listed from the intro that you read. Uh, actually, my very first job when I was 15, I worked at a used car lot. And the dirty secret of car lots is they buy a lot of insurance recoveries and wrecks and things like that. And one of my first jobs was actually wiring up cars that had stereos that have been stolen. So somebody with a box cutter, cuts, you know, 11 or 16 wires, however many are in in the stereo in that dash. And uh, you've got to put in a unit from a junkyard or something like that. So you learn really quick. You can go in with a a AA battery and pop your speakers to figure out what's what. And, uh, you know, you've got your constant 12 volt and your keyed switch 12 volt and your ground. And, uh, you know, I started working with wires almost as soon as I had a job. And that's really what stuck. So I uh, did really well with that. I was also involved in a lot of pro audio, uh, did stage performance, was a guitarist for a long time and, and had a lot of experience with that. So it's kind of been this passion and this underlying theme. Moved into hi-fi. Uh, actually, my uncle owned the shop that we worked at. We were a B&W dealer and did Macintosh tube amps and Runco and, you know, really, really high-end stuff, which uh, interestingly worked in a very conservative town like we're in. So got a lot of experience there, and uh, also learned a lot of people skills about how to speak with different customers. And uh, I saw people of all different classes and statures and jobs and professions, and and picked up quite a bit of uh, tact that I've used in the industry there. Which uh, my uncle retired then, and I moved along to Vista AV that you'd mentioned. That was the university vendor where I did my first conference rooms and learning spaces and things like that, Uh, and that led to a job at the university where I've been on the front lines of uh, a couple of different teams. And it's been really enjoyable here.
0: Nice. Thanks for that overview. You hit on a few things I want to I wanna go back to there, sure. um, especially the car audio thing. I could really identify with what you were saying with like the car battery to figure out what wire the speaker was connected to. And I had a lot of the same experiences um, when I started in AV of really that down and dirty, you know, cut the cable and figure out what's going on with it but yeah. that's that's a very analog thing right if you were starting out today i don't know if you'd really have that kind of experience sure with loudspeakers and things like that that's still analog and uh sure. and and that would still work that kind of idea but i wonder if um somebody coming up in in this more digital environment would have that same uh that same kind of experience and also if that still has a lot of value right um yeah, I mean, you can't troubleshoot HDCP with a AA battery and a 12-volt yeah. test light. Yeah, no chance at all, right? So it's it's a lot more was, cerebral. Yeah, and
1: I think that was really good kind of uh, from the ground up, like you were saying, from a foundational level that may not exist for some folks in the industry now, uh, really learning troubleshooting skills. That's yeah. something that I, I'd argue is almost borderline art. It's very, very hard to teach people that logical sense to where, if you get a trouble call, you almost know what it is and what you're going to do to fix it, even if they described it poorly, just based on the room design or what the code is. Or, you know, unfortunately, it's sometimes something that you've uh, inflicted on yourself. But uh, having that sixth sense of of knowing what's wrong and being able to troubleshoot is really, really helped by starting
0: at the very, very ground level like that. So you mentioned you play guitar as well, and. Yeah. There's a lot of musicians in this business, obviously. And to marry that back to the troubleshooting idea, I -hmm. really think that, especially as a guitarist, if you have a lot of pedals and stuff, you you know, you're always patching stuff around. It has a lot to do with signal flow. It does. That's really what troubleshooting comes down to in my mind is, you know, there's this chain of of events, of devices and connections. And somewhere in there, something is wrong. So having that mental model of the signal flow or just that 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 concept of, you know, it starts here and it ends there and there's stuff in the middle, I think is really helpful when troubleshooting.
1: Yeah. And you also figure out those really weird, quirky things too. Like I hear the hum until I touch the tone knob on this specific pedal. So why yeah. don't I try putting a piece of tape there to apply the same pressure and, you know, things that, shouldn't work that way and and have absolutely no reason to be fixed that way. You accidentally find out and you learn little tricks of things to look for and, uh, you know, ways to rig things that can save the day sometimes. Definitely.
0: Definitely. So you never know where that uh, experience will come from.
1: Yeah. I I heard a lot of things about ham radio guys having really interesting tricks, you know, Uh, and same kind of thing that you're saying with cars and, and guitars. It's really hard to learn those accidentally. You have to be, in the field and get that experience from uncommon places.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. So everybody in AV has at least one story, usually too many stories about a nightmare project. A nightmare project. Let's, let's not talk about those. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me about your most rewarding AV project and and what made it special for you?
1: Oh, interesting. Um, Most rewarding project. Let me think for a moment on that. I, I pause because uh, it's not that there's a lack, it's because there's an overabundance on so a
0: pick one that really feels special, you know? I think that's uh, an exception. <laughs> <laughs> but For most people, it's easier to pick the uh, the nightmare project. Sure, sure. Yeah, that, that
1: exists far too common, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'll just brag on our most recent uh, classroom upgrade. We've gone from systems that include analog only to analog and digital. Uh, until recently, we've offered a VGA connection everywhere. And we decided, you know, let's let's do this right. Let's do this the real way. Let's have a full 4K HDCP2 signal path. We'll go digital only. Um, in fact, I think Intel just dropped the bytes on the chip that even support analog video to where new laptops won't even do that anymore. Um, so we designed a completely 4K compliant system minus display devices we haven't gotten there on the actual displays yet um, almost all hdmi in digital switching hd base t control over ip we're also adding functions like cameras where we've never had them so we could do things like this where there's a zoom call in a room previously that would have been an equipment checkout and and sneaker net install um, so we've really really been able to roll all the great ideas that we'd kind of drooled over for the last few years into a system that is affordable and works and, and trying to build a, a bare bones program, not from a uh, lacking functionality point of view, but from a not over constrained point of view. And uh, it's been a rewarding project so far. We've got two pilots in, we plan to do about 10 more and uh, so far so
0: good. We're planning to keep on trucking with it. All right. Uh, tell me more about the control over IP aspect. I'm a programmer. Sure. I want to I know about that. Sure. So I, I gave you a
1: preview and a comment yesterday on the webinar, but uh, a lot of our devices are Crestron connected displays, which means that uh, I think they call it one different thing in the sales brochure versus simple windows. I think it's a room view connected display in the programming language, but basically it's it's kind of what, um, CEC was supposed to be, but never was where there's a standard set of commands. There's, there's one symbol and it has on off volume up, down mute. And I think there's 16 input sources and a lamp hours output, something like that. Um, but it's, a uh, just generic enough to work and just, uh, you know, specific enough not to be over specific symbol that, uh, Basically, you put it in the program and you run it, and then you point the device back at the IP address of the processor that you want, and it just works. There have been a couple of kinks and bumps in the road, and and it's been a learning experience, but I can write a program and hot swap a projector or a flat screen or whatever we need to um, just by changing the menu on that device to point back at the processor. So uh, it's our first time doing that before uh, there was always this fear of the network. You know, it's the device that we don't own and manage and we don't have the key to that closet and we can't do the, the patching ourselves and the switch rules and, and all those sorts of things. Obviously with the AVIT convergence, uh, we should have left that thought process behind about 10 years ago. We're just starting to get warm to that reality now and uh, doing IP control the way that we have been is uh Really, what brought that to the surface for us and and made us realize, yes, this is working, yes let 's plan systems around this it 's not just an experiment or something to do in your development lab it's it 's something to deploy and put everywhere
0: yeah definitely it's uh, it 's nice to hear that you had some success with that uh connected solution um, yeah i don 't think it 's the gleaming star that
1: that everybody wishes for uh, you know i, I don 't think people buy displays specifically for that feature. Or, uh, you know, it's not in the comparison grids when you're going between models, but it's been a nice convenience instead of having to find a specific module for a specific
0: display every single time. Sure, sure. I'm glad it's working out for you. Control is often an afterthought, unfortunately. So you mentioned uh, jumping onto the network and having some concerns about doing that, and of course, I see it all the time in AV projects, we, we make like an isolated network, right? A lot of people, for that very thing you were talking about, that fear of having to um, integrate with a, a, a real IT system and yeah. deal with the IT administrators and things like that, we'll either avoid it altogether or make our own isolated network. So, so sure. how, how was that experience working with um, the IT department and, uh, and getting your devices on their network?
1: Sure. So I, I think the evolution and mindset uh, in higher ed, there used to be the computer guys, and then there were the AV guys, and the AV guys were real quick to draw the line with, well, chose a signal on my VGA cable, so it must be your problem. Yeah. And there was a lot of finger pointing back and forth between the two different silos. Uh, and it's been that way with networking in a lot of places too. Um, we're really lucky to have great really approachable network guys, but uh, there are also constraints that they have to follow. You know, there's information security to worry about. We've got a little bit of an atypical network that's zoned. Um, So there's a student zone and a faculty staff zone. And um, what we've been able to use quite handily is uh, called the campus services zone. And that's where they put printers and devices like that, that all parties need to access. Um, We learned that lesson early on actually with immersive Solstice. We had a, a wireless display solution and we'd registered it in the student zone because that's where our electron computers were in public things. And the first time a faculty member wanted to have a faculty staff meeting in the room, it didn't work at all. You know, those parts of the network didn't touch each other. So okay. uh, we've learned a couple of little tricks like that and how that works. Now we're actually on the eduroam system, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with or not. It's It's kind of a huh. cooperation between universities. So if I've got my login at Notre Dame, I could go to... You know, pick somebody, Duke, Georgia State, Oregon, wherever that may also have Edge And I've already got a login. I don't need to be added as a guest or uh, approach their IT desk or anything. It's shared network access, um, Wi-Fi generally between universities.
0: Uh, so that's fascinating. There, not, there are nuances. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. But not screen sharing or anything like that. It's just uh, to get on the network
1: yeah it's mostly your port 80 get out to the web kind of stuff okay i see um so that's another kind of thing that we've learned with those wireless video systems you can be on the network that says it's the right one but internal folks versus external folks
0: have a little bit different set of rules yeah absolutely as they should and those are the things that you need to watch out for it it really comes down to planning in the end well just how our industry has
1: changed that's kind of the evolution that networking's gone through, at least that's visible to me, is uh, you can make those things more accessible to more people and really offer that convenience, but still keep it secure and, and working efficiently.
0: Yeah, certainly, certainly. So um, ever since Infocom changed its name to Avixa, yes. I, I need to let Ask laugh. your
1: doctor if <laughs> well, Avixa
0: is right for you. Well... If if you say that in German, it's it's much, much worse. It's it, you wouldn't say it in front of your mother. It it doesn't sound good at all. But but moving on, so experience has kind of become a buzzword since they've done that. And um it's something we should always be emphasizing in A V. We should be thinking of the users first and thinking of the black boxes last, right? But I think this idea has kind kind of come up more and more. So what is your approach when you're designing a system or, or upgrading an existence uh, an existing one as far as experience is concerned?
1: Yeah, so this has changed a lot uh, in the short time I've been in the industry. It used to be all about the gear. You know, you looked at the spec list and you had to have the right number of ins and outs. And and now, I mean, the newest systems uh, with things like NVX and SVSI, you just put an endpoint everywhere and you figure out the program in the middle and and. we're not worried about big switchers and and things like that anymore at least we're moving that direction it seems Um, but the experience is really paramount and that's something that took the industry a little bit to figure out i think Um, i think it's because of mobile phones and uh, smart devices and and you know how things have changed towards material design over time and things like that you know if somebody goes up to your touch screen there used to be a receptionist that had a binder, and she'd open it to the right page, and and you know you'd see the 14 steps that you needed to turn on the room, and and uh, things used to be really disconnected and tedious. And somebody'd walk into the room and say, "Well, I just turn on my iPod, and I go here and and click on this, and it works. Why can't I do that here?" Yeah. And originally, I think our industry thought, "Well." Think of all the buttons you're missing and all the features you don't have and we didn't think of the user experience you know the what's the actual expectation of someone using the room versus what can it do and and what all can we cram in um, they're kind of two different vectors and we had to choose one so I, I think the industry slowly been warming up to it we've certainly been uh, changing our philosophy when we go into things like that uh, a good example is a building that we put up in 2012 um, beautiful classrooms. I mean, they're, they're full video conferencing suites to where you can actually have one classroom connected to a second classroom that are pushed to talk microphones at every seat and there's camera automation. So a student can ask a question in either room and the professor can see it and it's in the recording and, and it's really, really elaborate and amazing, uh, but it's tedious to use. The, the touchscreen looks like a control console and we get more calls from folks that just wanna show one thing Um, It's actually set up like a broadcast studio. You pick your source and you've got a preview, but then you've got to send it or hit that take button or whatever verbiage you use on it uh, to actually route it to the display. And I don't think that's anywhere else user facing on campus. Um, In hindsight, that's not the way we should have designed those rooms. The next revision will be really, really simple compared to that. Press on the thing that you want to see
0: and, and Maybe that means you want to see it and it should just do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's this uh, flexibility, usability trade-off. And, you know, sometimes there are rooms like that that require that kind of functionality, but it almost sounds like a room like that needs to be staffed, right? There there has to be a technician present to, to... To make it to to operate it because you need that training without it, right? And you can train the folks,
1: but uh, you know we're we're digital natives and we're around this yeah. all day. Uh, we've got a comfort level that the average person definitely does not. So but they have
0: other things on their minds, right? Have <laughs> a presentation it, yeah. to make sure, and that's kind of the underlying philosophy in higher
1: ed that's driven this: is the professor shouldn't have to worry about anything but his content. Yeah, you know, if there's a production uh, that needs to happen any part of that that you can automate or streamline or, or make, you know, half of a millisecond quicker and more efficient, we need to do that. That's what we owe the customer. And, uh, um, you know, we we should start thinking of them as clients instead of customers. It's our obligation to help them. And, um, we're providing these things and it it should be a partnership instead of a, a service provider, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, they use these things every single day. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's amazing how much an effect you could have on somebody's everyday life, how they work, you know, if they deal with it every day, they got to fight with a touch panel or doing something, uh, just because we provided this functionality that they probably only need 10 or 20% of the time.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Right. I, I, I get this feeling that collectively in AV, we try to cover every base possible and try to make things as rock solid as you can. And, um, We kind of uh, get into this phase where, you know, if they're only using 80% or if 80% of the time they do the same thing, that's what we should be doing and only that. And that's kind of where all these web services and and mobile apps and things like that that people are used to using, that's where they focus their attention is on that 80% use case. And that's how they make these things so simple. And yeah. we kind of weigh it as the same, you know, that 80% and the 20% extra functionality that they may need someday, probably will need, but they don't use it every day. We, we give that the same weighting. That's kind of how I, I, see, yeah. um, I see how this plays out sometimes. And I think there's a difference in markets too. Uh, I yeah, remember from sure. the
1: residential days, you know, somebody that bought a specific device, you know, say it's a Blu-ray player or something. They've compared it in, you know, Stereophile Magazine against the eight other competing models. And they know that it does this special chapter scrubbing feature. And if there's a button missing, that customer is going to tell you.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. we remember we're getting a
1: service call that the uh, AB repeat was missing from the touch screen. And we're all thinking like, whoever uses Who that? Who uses that? <laughs> we got the request, you know, and, and it's the exact opposite in commercial spaces and higher ed spaces. Um, One, because expectations are different. You know, the focus of the room isn't gear centric. And two, because you've got multi user spaces. It's not the same person that always owns the same space. They're moving around. You don't know who they're going to be if you can train them in advance, things like that. Uh, And again, it's the last thing that somebody using one of those spaces should have to worry about the professor doesn't care at all what the video switching is, how it operates. They just know if they hit laptop, they want laptop to show up. And if that's more than
0: one button press, we failed them. So tell me about this uh, one button studio concept. Sure. So the history of it,
1: I'm sure many folks are already familiar with it, but I believe in 2010, Penn State had these really nice studios. They had, you know, professional lighting and sound treatment and, and, higher resolution cameras than you'd see other places, and they were great. And it was a uh, uh, come book it and use our studio. We'd love for you to spend time here kind of a space. It wasn't closed off and owned by a department and and things like that, but people were intimidated by it and, and didn't come use it. And they kind of thought about that philosophically for a bit and said, well, it's because it's too hard to use. Let's make a, a one-button studio. So uh, I'm sure that's the description that they gave it that then became its name instead of vice versa, but who knows. Um, But the concept is you walk into a room with a thumb drive, plug it in, hit the record button, you record whatever it is that you want to, you know, capture, hit the button again, and you walk away with your video, you don't have to set anything up, you don't have to stage anything or or do programming or or really any production, you're just hitting a button and walking out with a video. Um, Mm. And that caught on like wildfire. And what was really interesting about it, um, we were talking about different customers and different expectations. I actually saw that coming from the academy more from more than from the tech people. We had professors asking for it before anybody in the IT group thought, man, that's a really cool idea. Um, there was that skepticism kind of like with putting things on the network or, you know, collaborating with the computer guys. Um, that slowness to change. Um, which hopefully is a character trait we're, we're getting rid of and moving beyond soon here. Um, but yeah, the, the professors actually would approach us and say, Hey, we saw this thing. We think it'd be really cool. We think our students would love to use it. Let's do that. So that happened to us and we said, man, we should put one of these in. And when we looked at it, Um, the Penn state system runs natively on a Mac mini, I believe. So you've got to be able to deploy and be licensed for and administrate, uh, OS X of some sort. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, their app runs on top of it. And there's a couple of video switching things and they've got a chroma key and a green screen thing. and, And there's part of it that'll do picture to picture. And we looked at all the things that it could do and said, you know, basically we're, we're putting a studio quality microphone and camera, into a room instead of a camcorder. We want it to be that simple. Let, let's get rid of this green screen thing. Let's get rid of this picture in picture thing. Let's just do a quality recording. That, that's what we were asked to do. And uh, hey, we've got these lecture capture devices in the closet and we've got this camera left over from this project. Let's just put it together with stuff that we've got. So we looked at it and uh, we had, like I said, a, a recording device already that was, uh, call it an AV appliance instead of a computer. Yeah. Um, which made us a little more comfortable because our department isn't generally computer folks. Um, I can poke a Capture HD and, and halfway know what I'm doing or, or the uh, SMP351, something like that. Uh, whereas an app written for a Mac, if it breaks, I really don't know where to start fixing it. So um, yeah. that that made us pretty comfortable. Um, then camera-wise, you know, we'd selected different things for, for different jobs in the past, but uh, we didn't need... Studio quality camera that had fifty seven little buttons on it and its own menu and its own firmware and and we said why don't we just put like you know Panasonic makes this can that's uh, or I'm sorry it's a camera that's kind of shaped like a soda can it has no accessible buttons on the outside of it you plug an HDMI cable into it and you get video through that it's it's as simple as that and it just works so yeah we put a recording appliance and an easier camera on a shotgun mic Uh, and then we said well how do we initiate this, how do we make the button do something? Um, so we're, we're a Crestron House, I wrote a Crestron program that starts the recording when you hit the button and stops the recording when you hit the button again. We added some studio lights along the way and uh, one of the things we're proud of actually, uh, if the record button is by the door of the room, you walk to where the X is marking the spot in the beginning of the recording, then you walk back to the back of the room to hit the end button, so we wired it up to use a guitar amp pedal. Uh, an homage back to my live sound days, I guess. Nice. <laughs> uh, so you can hit the stomp box from the X on the floor
0: and not have to edit out the beginning and ending of your video. Very nice. <clears throat> that that's a cool little hack. I like that. Is that does that have anything to do with a no control interface? I just had a few things in my notes from the emails we exchanged. Yeah. So in the one button studio. Uh, I would call it a low control
1: interface Uh, when I've presented on this at conferences before, actually um, you know, we've done it in jest, but we went into our one button studio that's actually built to the Penn state model. And we found every single button that we could, there's easily a dozen of them on the camera. There's a switch on the microphone. There's a video switch that's got a a toggle and two push buttons. And uh, they picked a monitor that had front facing buttons. So I've got this, mean collage of the 40 buttons that are in the room of the one button studio in ours it's literally just one it's a big red mushroom button it looks like a game show buzzer everything else is you know behind the scenes or locked in the rack and and there's only one button, and it only does one thing, and uh, we haven't had to explain it to anybody yet. It's been great.
0: Ah, that's perfect. That's that's the kind of feedback that you want. No feedback, right? <laughs> it just either, either it's broken, it doesn't work at all, or it works perfectly. Yes, it's it's perfect, or the
1: phones are down. Nice. So, uh, so you yeah. asked about no control, which is kind of the next evolution of that. Yeah, um, no control is what we've started doing in our collaboration spaces, where. Previously, if you walked into one of our team rooms, there were a bunch of laptop cables and there was a touch screen and you'd, you know, press the button that you needed to make your thing go up on screen. And and, uh, it was kind of that old school, traditional control mentality. Now Mm -hmm. our thought is, well, every person on the planet wiggles their mouse to wake up their computer monitor. Why don't we just do that with the PC in the room? So you wiggle the mouse, the video signal starts, and there's a pretty good chance that means you want to see it on the screen. So let's turn on the TV, let's switch to that input. And you didn't need to press any buttons. Makes you take sense. That a, a step further and you do that with laptop inputs. There's magically, you know, if at a moment in time sync appears on a laptop cable, well, it probably means you want to show it on the screen. Just switch to that one. Why do you need somebody to push a button to say that? Yeah. They didn't want that. And they see their thing. They go, oh, crap. They unplug the cable and it goes back to whatever it was before. Yeah. So auto switching is really the, the magic that's made that happen. Um, not that devices necessarily need to do that, but if we can sync detect, we can program that behind the scenes and, uh, it's pretty safe to assume what someone wants to do in a room like that based on video sync.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, I'm really amazed that it kind of took us so long to real, to, to make that a stand yeah. is it's not even standard yet. <laughs> it's, it's popular, but it's not, it should be a standard feature that like when video is detected, yeah. you switch to that input. And okay, you could disable that if you want, but it really should be the default.
1: Yeah. And I think my theory on that is uh, a little bit of it was hardware related. You know, you didn't want a room to turn on automatically when the computer came on, if it was a projector that took 90 seconds to warm up. And That's if bad. you wanted it off, you had to wait a few minutes. Now, you know, with a laser projector, you can get on and off in less Who than cares? Seconds. It, yeah. It's than some of our flat panels, actually. Yeah. So. Five so years ago, when uh, flat panels became affordable to use in meeting spaces, we started doing that, and we got rid of those Are You Sure pages and and stuff like that, that uh, previously would initiate timers and add extra steps and buttons, and we started to streamline when flat panels became more common. Now, with a laser projector, we've decided to treat them the exact same way, where there's no harm done, you're not, you know adding up lamp strikes that are fatiguing your lamps and, and things like that. Yeah. You hit the on button, just turn it on. It's quick. If you hit the off button, just turn it off. That's quick too. Uh, and auto switching kind of lends itself to that. There doesn't need to be an on button because you're not fatiguing your gear or adding up lamp hours or what damage
0: is done by this thing. Just turning on. Cause you wiggled the mouse. Right. Right. <laughs> You hit a great point there. I mean, the technology changes a lot faster than our habits. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well so you're said. used to programming something for so long in a certain way and it, it, you kind of take it for granted. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think it's a really great idea just to look at, you know, and inspect the things that you do, the normal standard practices that you have every once in a while and, and just look at them and say, you know, do i need to do this anymore and you know right. shut down pages startup bar graphs things like that completely blocking out the user from doing anything because a video projector is starting up maybe there was an argument for that uh 10 years ago but you're absolutely right today it's like it's it's a, why would you do that at all oh yeah you, you um, don't need that uh, windows xp
1: are you really 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 sure you want to shut right. down we're serious yeah uh, that's just unnecessary now devices are quick and and you're not damaging anything there there's No reason to put that in to protect anything anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. So So, the other... Oh, go
1: ahead, I'm sorry. Go for it, no, go for it. Yeah, I was gonna elaborate that the other kind of no control systems that we've done are the ones that don't actually have controls at all. Um, We've got a couple of rooms where there's just a wireless collaboration device and the TV turns on based on a timer at seven in the morning and turns off at 10 p.m. or or whatever it's set to. uh, And folks walk up and use it as they want. And then they disconnect and walk away when they don't, and, and there aren't any sources to switch. It's all user controlled by the device they're connecting to instead of what we'd think of as traditional AV gear.
0: Wow. And I've got some theories about doing that with occupancy detection to save a little bit of electricity too. Yeah, that was, of course, the next question is, is it's just on all day. And, yeah. And when so there's we, no source connected, it just shows a black screen, I guess, right? Well, it
1: shows the IP address for someone to connect to. And, oh, okay. Uh, okay. Connecting instructions. Yeah. And we looked at it, and, and the power consumption on the new LED TVs is decreased from what the old CFL backlight displays were to where we don't feel that bad about leaving TVs on. And we're seeing high utilization, so uh, yeah. convenience certainly costs something, and we, we decided to spend it on some electrons there, and it's worked out so
0: far. Right, right. Of course, there's a lot of parameters to take into account there. You have, is the room occupied? Like, are the rooms being used? So how often is it, you know, just idle and on? And um, again, that technology catching up, the power consumption is less. So Mm -hmm. these old fears we used to have of uh, wasting energy and things like that aren't, may not be as valid anymore. I think that would be a, a great case to start collecting some data right? To see, they you know, work. how often the sink is attached compared to how often the TV is actually on. And then then you could actually run some real calculations and know exactly how much is being wasted or not. And yeah. then compare that to, you know, whatever it is, what kind of um, efficiency you lose, right? For somebody fumbling for the remote or looking for a touch panel, that 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 kind of has a real cost too.
1: Yeah. You mentioned the experience and that, that really yeah. has to be the priority in a space like that. If you walk in and there's any inconvenience, uh, people just tend to walk away. And yeah. if it's there and it's on and it works and it looks inviting, that's worth a little bit of a spend sometimes.
0: Definitely. And then co- more collaboration happens, which is yeah, what and you're for, after. Yeah. And for the
1: power consumption and efficiencies and things like that, you know, if you weigh that versus utilization everything's ip connected everything's got a dashboard kind of a program there's a way to collect
0: those metrics and and actually find out absolutely that that's a part of this whole thing that i'm really interested in is is collecting real data on how systems are being used and um and you know making decisions based on that i think that's a uh, some place we could do a lot more as an yeah. industry it's powerful yeah for sure so, so let's let's shift gears here yeah and uh talk about 3d printing sure I watched one of your webinars or part part of it on 3D printing, and sure, sure. it seems like you have a lot to say on this subject. So, <laughs> I have got a few questions here, but I, I think I'll just um, let you have at it. What, what, how do you? Well, let's let's put a theme on top of it. How do how do you use you know how does 3D printing apply to AV if at all?
1: Sure, uh, it definitely does. Um, The backstory is it was a personal hobby of mine, and uh, I mentioned that elaborate building that had push-to-talk microphones everywhere. We had an issue where students would push their laptop into the push-to-talk button, so then the camera points directly at them, it turns their mic up in the mix, and, you know, them being on Facebook or doing work email or whatever they're doing interrupts the capture of the class then or shows that to the video conference at the FAR site. So we we were looking for a way to protect those push-to-talk buttons, and they're kind of like a disc-shaped thing that uh, you can hit from any direction. And we put um, kind of a crown-shaped piece around them. We looks like the crenellations of a chess rook that uh, is kind of a protection ring that goes okay. around those push-to-talk buttons. Uh, and that's decreased the number of occurrences from dozens of times per day to like once or twice every couple of weeks. Uh, we've seen a huge, wow. huge reduction in, in the number of, false triggers on those buttons because we 3D printed a little thing to make it a little harder to hit the button accidentally. So that was right. the initial project that was like the justification of, hey, maybe we can actually use this. Um, we were actually lucky enough to be able to borrow a printer from a colleague in another department It was moving and needed a place to store it that was better than a storage unit. Um, so we kind of chanced upon being able to access a device like that at work. But uh, since then, we've made dozens and dozens of things. Uh, my most recent project, actually, uh, you've seen the, the Logitech Spotlight, the new presentation remote? Okay. Um, yeah. It's kind of a side note. We're on a tangent yeah. now. But uh, it's, it's really cool. In a room where you've got 20 screens or something, it actually is software on the computer that highlights that area of the screen. And it's distributed, uh, if you're screen sharing in a video call or it's recorded in the capture or uh, whatever you have, it's a lot more... Um, Useful than pointing a dot of laser on one screen that students may or may not be looking at. Right. But anyway, uh, these are rechargeable. So when we get a call that it's out of batteries, we can't fix that. People need to be able to recharge these. So we're making a dock that's 3D printable and fits in a desk grommet. And uh, hopefully, if we can get people into the good habit of returning these to the dock, they'll always be fully charged. And uh, then they'll be less likely to walk away in people's briefcases, too. And uh, so that that's our latest project with printing, but there've been a dozen in the middle, uh, holding things up in racks, making little clips to hold devices on brackets and uh nothing structural. We're not doing T V mounts or anything like that. Yeah. But uh, I mean you you'd probably do this in designs all the time where it's like, Man, I, I need this one little widget and I swear I saw it, but this one's ninety degrees wrong and you you dig through Middle Atlantic's catalog and then you go to Legrand's website and realize that there's 14 million products and you go to, you know, once you spend 10 minutes looking for something in a catalog, if you can draw it in CAD, uh, you might have that thing an hour later, you know, click print before you go to lunch and you might be able to install the thing that you, couldn't find
0: in any supplier's catalog when you get a back all right so so you mentioned cad there and that's yeah. what i want to know about just sure i, I know it's going to be a huge subject but if you could kind of uh just give me a brief overview of what the process is so you're walking sure. around you're, you're looking all over the place and you have all these ideas now because now you can make anything right yeah yep So so what what is the process like so um, CAD is
1: computer-aided drafting. Drafting is uh, what we all did on those slantable tables in high school with the really elaborate, uh, you know, mechanized rulers that were 90 degrees. And um, basically our design process, we all do what I like to call napkin CAD. That's when you're at lunch and on the bar napkin with an ink pen that you borrowed from uh, the waitress, you're you're drawing your system design. You've got the lines between boxes and, and you know, you're... Your, Roughest sketch that you come back to the office with. Uh, A lot of these start with Napkin CAD. And then you can open up a program and with real tools that use basic shapes like squares and circles and triangles and drawing lines, you make a representation of it. And then you pull that two dimensional shape into a three dimensional one. And if you need to, then you can make a drawing on the side of it to put in a recess or draw something out. And um, it's a workflow that you start to learn. But you think of these objects that you want to design in. They're basic, more fundamental shapes, and then that's how you construct them uh, out of
0: components that exist in that software. So you kind of have building blocks in CAD that you could kind of yeah. piece together and make it kind of like Legos, I guess? There are some that are drag and drop like Legos. Uh, there's okay. one in particular called Tinkercad. Um,
1: and it's also neat that it's browser-based. You don't need to install anything. Uh, so that you was go the there, next log question. log in. You can drag and drop whatever shapes you want. You can combine them. You can cut with them to put holes in things. And uh, there is a Lego integration with that, actually. After you've designed something, you can either turn it into Lego bricks or vice versa. Wow. Um, that company is is Autodesk, who, uh, in my opinion at least, is kind of the leader of the industry right now. Yeah. Uh, they've got integrations where you can put wiring channels and LEDs and battery clips and switches and things like that in. And it just automatically generates the shape that you need to 3d print from it Um, all kinds of neat things so there's there's that building blocks kind of cad there's the clay sculpting kind of cad where you end up with a a sphere and you can drag different tools on it to make organic shapes Um, Mm. people also 3d print from things like photoshop you can create 3d objects in really um, or full-blown cad where you're doing what a designer would do and orbiting around in 3d and and you've got powerful more professional tools there
0: there's a whole spectrum of what's out there amazing so so once you have this design done in software yeah i, I guess it's just a file that gets uploaded to the machine yeah so it's generally called an stl file um it's about a 30 year old
1: format that's starting to show its age hopefully we replace it with uh, some initiatives that have started as of late um but you've got a wireframe then which you can think of kind of like how a uh computer graphics work in video games or how CGI works before they've put it through a rendering farm to get high uh, facet counts and things like that. You've got this shell of a shape and you put it into a software that does what's called slicing. And that's actually what generates the G-code and the machine code that a printer runs on and and the instructions to build that object. And it it builds it one layer at a time. I always tell people it's kind of like making a loaf of bread one slice at a time. It does the bottom layer, and then it stacks a second layer on top, and, and yeah. successively, you've got your shape. So, and what about the materials? Are there different kinds of materials, or...? Yeah, so the most common material, or, or at least recently most common, uh, is ABS plastic. Which chances are, if you look around on your desk and there's 100 plastic things, I bet you 98 and a half of them are ABS plastic. Okay. Uh, Other materials, PET is what water bottles are made out of. That's a polyethylene mix you can print in nylons. Um, I said that ABS was recently the most popular. I I think today what's the most popular material is one called PLA. That's uh, the acronym for polylactic acid. It's actually a vegetable starch plastic. It's a bioplastic. So... It's a little bit more green. It's something that's compostable. And uh, it's got some properties that make it pretty forgiving for the average printer to to use. So um, there's a whole range. But you can also get things that have carbon fiber chopped in them. You can get magnetic materials. You can get conductive materials, flexible things. Um, the, there's a whole range of what's out there. And that's just the printers that uh, print with melted plastic. There's a couple different varieties that are different styles of machines on top of that.
0: Wow, so when does it make sense to start looking at this? Like, obviously, uh, it's something that is easy to get excited about. So, if it becomes a hobby for you, then obviously, just go for it, right? Right. Like, at one point, um, does it become commonplace just to have a three D printer in in an organization? I'm not going to say a home yet, but like in in a a mid to large size organization, do you think that's going to become commonplace? So I, I think, uh, especially in higher ed, a lot of people already have
1: something on campus, it's either your engineering department or science or art, or even the libraries a lot of times will have a maker space and, and some kind of facilities. Um, what's missing, and I think that, that key that you need before you get started is the inspiration. You need that first project where you think, man, we really need this thing, but it just doesn't exist yet. Um, so that, that inspiration would spark you saying, well, how can we make one? And, and if you've got a printer on campus, you can probably go use it for a few bucks and, and make your thing. And then you're hooked. Um, it's, it's technically called additive manufacturing, but a lot of people have taken to calling it addictive manufacturing. <laughs> Once you've started, it just keeps going. Uh, you get that mindset and, uh, you know, if all you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, um, uh, I'll right. tell you, there, there's an awful lot of nails out there.
0: Excellent. Excellent. That's uh, really cool. I've got to make the time to look into that someday, or at least get my kids turned onto it and um, see what they come up with. Sure. Sure. Well, next time there's that thing, let me know. (laughs) Right. Well, Jim, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, uh, going everywhere from AV and user experience down to 3D printing. Uh, This was a lot of fun. It was. Thanks for having me again. If anybody wants to get in touch with you sometime, is there a a good way they could uh, reach out to you on Twitter or anything like that?
1: Uh, yeah, please. Um, honestly, sending an email is just fine. Uh, my address here at Notre Dame is in the directory. You can look up or uh, it's jspence4 at nd for Notre
0: Dame dot edu. All right, Jim. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Hey, Patrick here again. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, if you liked what you've heard, if you want to hear more discussions like this, please go to iTunes, leave a review, subscribe to the show, send me a comment, get in touch with me somehow, and let me know that you're out there listening. And that'll motivate me to keep doing these shows and get more great guests on. So if you're driving or whatever, ask Siri to set something in your calendar to give you a reminder to go to iTunes and leave thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. For transcripts and show notes, go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com.